Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Peter Whittle. Now I'm delighted that uh, my guest this week is someone who's actually been on the show a while ago, but during COVID, so it was all done remotely. Uh, Professor Doug Stokes, who is Professor of International Relations at Exeter University, just written this extremely important book, uh, Against Decolonization. And the subtitle is Campus Culture Wars and the Decline of the West. Um, so pleased to joining us now. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Peter. Doug. Um, first things first, I just want to make a com comment about the book, is that you cover a huge amount yep. in this, yep. um, around about <coughs> 150 pages, uh, my kind of book. Um, quite often, you know, authors will take five, 600 pages to yep. say what you say. Yep. Um, <coughs> very, very important. Um, particularly as an academic working at the very coalface of what we're talking about. Um, first things first, decolonization. Can you give us a pissy definition? Uh, because we <coughs> hear it banded about, and yet at the same time, we're not quite sure what it is. Well, decolonization refers to the period uh, when you had the dissolution of the European empires. So politically, that was the process of decolonization, i.e. how former colonies basically sort of sought independence through nationalist movements, sometimes communist movements, etc. So that's the formal process of political decolonization. Decolonization, as it, as it appears on our campuses, refers to uh, something that's kind of, a, a, I think you could argue would be sort of parasitic on those mo movements, right. but it's, it's far more about essentially a, a critique of Western civilization in, in, the, in the current moment and it basically says to cut a long story short it draws on and we can go into this if you want to but it, it draws on a kind of uh, some elements of Marxism but primarily postmodern and post-structural and what are called post-colonial theories and these essentially argue that uh, all knowledge is, is, is contingent there's no such thing as truth or science or objectivity so all knowledge is contingent uh, and therefore there's no such thing as truth and therefore human life is characterized by struggles over truth and meaning. So, so does that mean that like, the, the colonization that we're talking about, say <coughs> for example at universities, is the colonization by white western <coughs> people of concepts like the truth? Well, so, so, so essentially what the, the, the critique that they would make, the decolonized make, is that uh, Western forms of knowledge, what are called white Eurocentric forms of knowledge, mm. uh, are fundamentally imbued with power relationships that rest on former colonial forms of rule. And what this, what these forms of knowledge do, and they're, they're thoroughly contingent, they're highly ideological, but what they ultimately do is they construct non-Western people and non-Western ways of knowledge as inherently inferior. And these things suffuse our culture. They they kind of they're everywhere. They're with, so everything we do kind of reproduces these forms. So the decolonizers in our universities and beyond. So you see, it, for example, in British institutions, the British Museum, the National Trust, they've kind of adopted this ideology, this very political ideology of of, of decolonization, and they argue that essentially we sort of drive out the demons of white Eurocentric thought. Mm basically, and, and, and how it reproduces structural inequalities for non-white minorities. Oh, I see. Yeah. It's, so all, it's all thoroughly contestable, by the way. None of it, if you look at the data or you get any sense of it, it it's complete and utter nonsense. Yeah. But that's the claim. But 
What's interesting, you know, because you, you start the book talking all about the 2020 and the death of George Floyd and how that, you know, kick-started things all over the world. <coughs> now here it took this form, well, apart from the statues coming down, in our institutions of this decolonization pro process. I, I just wondered, you know, you've been an academic now for 20 years? Yeah. <coughs> um, and so it couldn't just have arrived, actually, in 2020. I mean, or, or maybe it did. It just, you mentioned there the institutions, they mm. all sang from the same hymn sheet very quickly, you know, the library, the British Library, the British Museum, Kew Gardens, uh, virtually everyone. Yeah. So <coughs> had this been developing over a long period? Yeah, so th th there's different ways I think you can account for the tsunami wave, right? The first way is, and I kind of talk about this in the book, I think it's, I mean, the book covers quite a lot of stuff. It, so it looks at a lot of the data about the claims in, in both the UK and the US. It looks, I, I think I give a fair summary of the theories that underpin de decolonization, so post-structuralism, post-colonialism. Post I then critique them, I argue for science, look at history, and then look at geopolitics, and we can come on to that, I, I'm sure we will, about the implications of some of this, basically. But I think that, so it, there's a number of different ways we can account for it. I think the first way we can account for it is the growth of uh, this, what, what, what we could call kind of uh, sort of relativism right. in the academy. And that really is emergent from uh, so a social constructivist position on human knowledge and what's called epistemology. And that basically says, so in, in the Western tradition, obviously, especially you know, in the last couple of hundred years post-Enlightenment, or in the Enlightenment period, there's a primacy placed on rational adjudication, reason, to arrive at something we can call the truth, mm. ultimately. So there is a thing out there, and there are different ways of understanding it, but ultimately those ways are testable through scientific knowledge, and then we can attain a better understanding of what exists, mm. and then move forward in, in that sense. So, so the, the de decolonizers draw on a different epistemology, a theory of knowledge. They basically say there's no such thing as truth or science. In fact, the, those things are impositions of a white colonial mindset and to seek to understand the world is to seek to impose upon the world to seek to control the world ultimately and that's a really really bad thing so what they argue they kind of drew, draw on a, a, a theorist called Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida and also the post-colonial theorist like Edward Said they draw on a social constructivist epistemology which says there's no such thing as truth or science ultimately everything is kind of socially uh, socially constructed. Mm -hmm. So your truth has as much validity as my truth. In other words, there's, there's what we can call a judgmental relativism. So, so essentially, there are, there's no such thing as truth, there are just different truths. There's mm -hmm. millions of different truths. And you can see how this begins to spill out into wider culture in terms of if we abandon science and what, what I'd call ontological realism, mm -hmm. i.e. the belief that a world exists independently of our knowledge of it, so your biology, your chromosomes exist, or gravity exists, or you know there's a, there is a thing called the material world. If we if we abandon that, basically, then we end up in this fundamentally epistemologically relativist world, mm. where essentially my identity is the truth. Yes, I am what I am, mm. and you just have to accept it. And if you don't accept it, because you have no rational education, how dare you impose your truth on me? Mm. Do you see what I mean? And so then you start going down the line of like words are violence, silence is violence. Yep. Because drawing on Foucault and these ideas, and these aren't necessarily explicitly, they're not drawing on them theoretically explicitly, but they're now suffuse our culture. Mm. And, and, so, and essentially, so that therefore, the way you think about the world 
fundamentally shapes the world. It kind of actively shapes the world. Rather than your thought understanding the world as it is, your understanding sh actively shapes the world. Yeah, yeah. So, therefore, so therefore the stakes for these people become much higher. Mm. If I, if I occupy, according to their garbled theories, a kind of colonial mindset, then I'm just by thinking those things, I'm actively oppressing a whole set of, of people and categories, etc. I see. So basically, you this has been sort of like obviously going on for a while. Yeah. Um, but this particular kind of, uh, you know, it's, it was almost sort of uh, you know, by arrangement around about you know, 2020, uh, where everyone sort of came out with this particular thing. Mm. I mean, it was hard to uh, not to see it as kind of a finally we've got our chance that that was the feeling i got these people were saying this is our opportunity well i, I think so i completely agree so i think i think but i think what you had was you have you had that general set sort of takeover of the humanities and social sciences in the anglophone institutions and it's notably the anglophone institution the uk and the us in particular so you had that and then you had uh, obviously the election of trump in 2016 and then suddenly there was this sense of political and moral urgency. Uh, there was kind of a, what some people call Trump derangement syndrome, where essentially he was seen as the Antichrist, the, the manifestation of white supremacy. Mm. So suddenly the kind of the active shaping of our cultural narratives took on a very strong political urgency, mm. uh, particularly on the West Coast. So if you, if you look at a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that we, we've sort of swum through, the, in the last five years in particular, a lot of it really comes out of a tiny part of the US and yes. very powerful tech corporations. Yeah. So you had the kind of Trump derangement syndrome, then you had the Brexit derangement syndrome too in this country, again, incorrectly uh, seen as, as some sort of, the, a sort of a short goose step away from fascism. Mm. How dare working class people express their political agency against liberal hegemony that's been kind of pretty much enjoyed its day in the sun for the last 40 odd years without contestation. Mm. How dare they do that? So, so, you, so you had that too, basically. And, and, and then, so, and so, so combined with this kind of, this, this system in the universities, this way of thinking that became mm. dominant, this kind of various anglophone derangement catastrophization processes taking place, very p powerful s parts of American capitalism and capital, mm -hmm. right? very powerful on the West Coast. Uh, and, then, and then beyond that, the adoption of a kind of uh, uh, a, a, a new moral economy in the anglophone institutions. Mm -hmm. And wh what do I mean by that? I mean, basically in, in, in the, in, what we've seen as as the anglophone economies have changed, the US and the UK economy have changed, you've seen the increased supranationalization, but also the, the emergence of new cultural elites mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. And in, to my mind, at least, one of the ways in which these cultural elites maintain power, an elite ultimately wants to maintain power, right? One of the ways it does it is it kind of generates a politics of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's sort of, it's parasitic. And it generates this this notion of a politics of vulnerability and it says basically there are these endlessly vulnerable often minority groups but groups in general and, and you see this a very powerful moral narrative covid the vulnerable populations the ethnic minorities vulnerable populations you know uh, vulnerable populations and and, and but, so essentially 
the articulation of a positive vulnerability and what's the solution to that? To give these cultural elites more power to fix these problems, to look after these problems, yeah, yeah. to look after these, these vulnerable. And if you don't, you're a moral monster. Yeah. You're a moral monster. Yeah. How can, how can, uh, you, you know what I mean? So, so, so essentially, therefore, it's, you've got this sort of the, 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 the ele- theoretical dis- discussions and elements on the campus. You've got a kind of catastrophization in the anglophone economies, and you've got new technocratic elites that have emerged, basically, that have kind of suffused this positive of vulnerability. Mm. Endlessly vulnerable populations, and you have to give them power to fix and to look after these populations. You sort of call, the, is it professional managerial class, the yeah. PMCs? Yeah, yeah. Um, th- so they, they are your elite, are they, or are they just the foot soldiers? Well, no, so but basically the, 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 the concept of, of PMC, the professional managerial class, it draws on a really interesting and rich uh, lit- literature. And, and so it's Barry Ike and Green's done some great work on this. Uh, 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 Michael Lind has done some great great work on this too. Matt Goodwin, I think you've had on here too, draws upon these ideas. And so, so essentially, we are, it, and, and the argument, broad argument, is that in the in the Cold War period, the capitalists and the communists won't win. Mm. Who will win will be the bureaucratic class, mm, mm, right? Mm. And you're seeing that now very strongly again in the anglophone economy, classic in in the UK. So you, although you may have a Tory party in power with a Tory majority, ultimately, as as they seek to exercise power, stop the boats or these that's reforms or stop these diversity programs, yes. they they reach for it, and it's like a chimera. It just it's like a spiderweb that falls apart yeah. in their hand. Why? Because basically, power is ultimately one step removed from government. You vote for the government. Basically, you have a whole deep state, ultimately, a kind of one step removed governance structure, right? In the National Health Service, mm-hmm. NHS England. It's not the government that controls it, it's the National, National NHS England. Who's heard of that? Mm-hmm. Nobody's really heard of it. Mm-hmm. So you've got a whole quango class, a bureaucratic administrative class, you've got a charity cart class, all of whom are parasitic on British taxpayers, but all of whom ultimately have no democratic accountability. You know, what's interesting about this um, is that the point has been made before, but uh, this really spells it down in some ways, how this is an academic thing. This originated in academia, Mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, from Europe (coughs) through to then obviously uh, America and now back again, I suppose you could say. Um, (coughs) What I was interesting, one of the points you make here, um, because all the data in the book, um, you talk about the the prevalence of certain phrases now in the media. Yeah. You know, such as white privilege. Yeah. Such as, well, actually, you mentioned vul- vulnerable there. Yeah. Like, how many times do you even see that word? I know it's not yeah. one you're focusing on, but yeah. these kind of words we see now, wh- uh, white privilege, all the rest of it. What I was going to ask you, just uh, why, you know, why does the media push this? And you, you know, people might say, "Well, you've been so naive, Peter, and everything." But I would say, why, why do they push? Why are they the propagandists for what you're describing? Because they, they just are, aren't they? Yeah. So there's a there's an interesting guy called I think his name David Rosario, right. Rosario, and he, he's got a fantastic Substack. Uh, I hope he's got I hope he got his name right. But he's done some incredible sort of disaggregation of the data. And I, I go over it in my book, but obviously it's quite a sort of mm. complex data, but it's done simply in the book. But if I recall correctly, I think over a sort of four year, the period after George Floyd, suddenly you saw, you saw phrases like white privilege, uh, racism, slavery, go up in some cases by 
2,500%. So yeah, suddenly yeah, there's a yeah. massive amplification of this yeah. within our discursive echo chamber and our, our media echo chamber, basically. Um, so so, 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 so how do we account for that? Well, I think for a start, I think one of the ways we can account for that is, is this kind of politics of vulnerability. If you are, I, I think that um, the sense of we have a kind of broader metaphysical struggle in, in, in this country, right? There are those that still believe in the country, are patriotic, are welcoming, open and inclusive, right? Mm. But have a sense of self, have a sense of place, mm. right? And sees the country as, a, as ultimately a bounded community, which has its, its sets of social contracts uh, to, that binds it together, basically. And in the post-war system, especially under globalization, we've seen an alternative kind of moral economy begin to emerge that, that actively seeks to denigrate and deconstruct mm. the nation. Mm -hmm. And in fact, sees notions of patriotism or even the, the sense of a bounded community as somehow gauche and unreconstructed. And you saw this really play itself out in the debates over Brexit. You yeah. know? So if you, if, you, if you believed or you had a sense of the nation and thought that this was a bounded community of some kind, even a belief in, the, in a border, you know, and a national culture, you're kind of almost beyond the pale. You're, you're kind of, oh, how dare, you know. So, 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 I, so I think that you have that, that very strong, ultimately metaphysical struggle now taking place. So, and I think that within our cult institutions, you do have obviously I ideological true believers, but then you also have, I think, a collapse of moral confidence amongst leaders as well, basically, in terms of the articulation of, 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 of though that sense of boundedness or national pride or patriotism. Mm. So I think, I think that those are things are seen as gauche, and especially when you kind of put it on the Brexit thing, which is, mis in my opinion, radically uh, 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 mischaracterized as, as a kind of racist, uh, out, outburst of xenophobia, uh, it, it, you know. So, mm. so, so I think then again that so there's also this moral mission. Mm. So I think that you, I think what you're seeing in our institutions, our cultural institutions, is really the the the, the, the production line of these graduates now that yeah. the last 10, 15 years have been pumped out in huge numbers. Often have gone into the media, mm. often are drawn from quite privileged backgrounds, mm. so haven't really grown up in multiracial neighborhoods where that sense of diversity and inclusivity is your lived experience because your neighbors are black yes, or because yes. your neighbors, you see what I mean? This, this is another thing that's really driven me in this book is I was born and bred in Hackney in East London, one of the most multiracial and poorest parts of London, right? Uh, the first hands to ever touch me were delivered by a black midwife. My first love was a, was a black girl, basically, you know, very multiracial, very diverse. And so a lot of this stuff, basically, as far as, I, as, far as I'm concerned, is essentially finger-wagging at the working class. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's an elite class war. The culture war is a class war, basically. That's what it is. It's a symbolic class war where our, our betters, middle class, upper middle class, uh, uh, cultural elites, are finger-wagging at the working class and saying, how dare you choose Brexit? Mm -hmm. How dare you? You're unreconstructed. And yet, the, the injustice of this is that most working class people, especially if, you, if you're from London, have grown up in those diverse neighborhoods. Mm, They're yeah. the ones that have literally been at the cold face of, of immigration yep. and have in, invariably muddled along mm. and, and made a much, and so, and, but then you've got people come, you know, 
you see what I mean? So, so there's a, there's a real yeah, sense, and I think yeah. I think that sense of injustice and anger yeah. is very very strong amongst mm. the British people, because because we are. If you look at the data, we're an incredibly welcoming nation. Mm. If you look at the data in terms of ethnic minority advancement, the numbers of black kids going to universities, the outcomes of Indian and Asian. Uh, kids and in terms of fin uh, financial outcomes, educational outcomes, much better than the white majority. And, and so many different metrics. Why do you think millions of people are coming to this country, want to live in this country? And that's a great thing. But then to be told, the majority are told, majority black and white, by the way, are told, you know, you're bad, you're wrong, you, you know, you're, you're essentially, you know, how dare you want a sense of, of, of yeah. poor, it's, de it's desperately patronising, mm -hmm. and it doesn't even capture it, I mean, I think, a, was it a one third of black British Londoners, or black Brit Britons, voted for Brexit as yes, well. Yes, and also 40% of Londoners actually as well, more than for Sadiq Khan. <laughs> yeah, well, so, so, they, so yeah, there you go, yeah. so again, it, it kind of like, it, 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 it's, a, it, it's ultimately a fairy story. Yeah. Uh, not really grounded on reality. Well, there are some yeah. people actually who say that, in fact, it's sti it is basically punishment for Brexit. That what we're going through now with the absolute sort of uh, deconstruction of identity <coughs> is actually kind of paying back. <coughs> One thing that interests me as well, Luxie, you, you, as I said, are academic of long standing. Um, you are surely, you know, right in the middle you know, uh, of this, Walk, working in, um, being a professor, University of Exeter. I mean, I, I would have thought, what is it like? I mean, are there many people like you? I mean, and also for that matter, you know, th there is this point, people, you know, we, we talk about how there is growing uh, restriction on free speech, you know? and people say, yes, but look, you know, you're writing books and, you know, you, you're still employed by the university. Um, I mean, what would you say to that? I would say a number of things. I'd say first and foremost, right, I think, I mean, I, I'm not going to talk about University of Exeter, obviously, no. but I mean, I'd, I, well, what I will say is the vast majority of my colleagues, right, in my, in my interaction with them, I'm all, I always try and conduct, conduct myself as professionally as possible, mm. and the vast majority are professional back. Right, it's very. I don't really, you know, uh, I don't really, you know, and I try and conduct myself very professionally. My main thing with is the students. I, I think that we need to really look after the students and have their welfare at heart in terms of their learning and their teaching. So I take that teaching element very, very, very seriously. Mm. Right. So I try and conduct myself in that way. But um, but yeah, but I mean, it, it has been incredibly hard. The last four years has been, been I mean, it's, it, I've become more and more out there. I've come out of the closet, if you will, mm -hmm. right? And it's been, it's been really, really hard. It's been, it's, there's only been a handful of us, most of whom you've had on this show. Uh, you know, there's been a handful of people that stood up and said this thing. And what, what really gets me the most is every time I write something or go on one of these fantastic shows, I always get loads of hundreds and hundreds of emails afterwards. Oh, Doug, I saw your show. I really, you know, I couldn't agree more, but I, can't, I better not say it because of my institution. Yes. Or the, and and then and then the other bit is then I get emails saying, Oh, Doug, I saw, you know, would you be interested in in, 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 in uh, talking to our students about this? I said, well, why don't you do it? Yes. Why don't you do it? Why don't you yeah. stand up and and you know make a stand? Yeah. So, but, uh, but so I, I think it's been it's been very very hard on me. Uh, in, in that sense. But do you know what, Peter? The, the way I see it is this, and I always tell myself this, I come from a really poor working class family, 
right? Didn't have a I can't, I can't swear on this show, can I? But can I swear? Of course you can. I didn't, I didn't have a pot to piss in yeah. growing up. Um, and so, I, and, and, but the way I see it is this, what I draw on in terms of, I don't say moral courage, but in terms of what drives me forward is you think about this, young men in wars, mm. 17, 18 years old in trenches in World War One or World mm. War Two, and they went over the, they went over the top or they, they, they literally laid their lives down mm. to stop uh, Nazi Germany or, do you see what I mean? Yeah. And if they can do that, mm. If they can do that as young men mm. and be, be driven by that sense of moral courage, mm. I don't have the right for half a second to not to stand up and be counted. Yeah. You see what I mean? No, so I, that, I that, 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 that's, that's where I'm coming from. I absolutely do. I mean, I think the thing is, when people say, you know, and, and I've said it myself, uh, it, you know, it's very, very difficult to be uh, open and to stand up if for example you've got a job with kids and a mortgage yeah. etc yeah. and you know if, if you don't want to go to unconscious bias training and all of that it's very difficult to do it however I suppose I'm slightly changing in the sense I think that the time is getting so urgent that yeah. actually people are going to have to start doing well, but I tell you the other thing as well right in the last four years I've stood up and I've stood up and been counted and I've, I, I, mm. uh, like a shield wall a battered shield wall if you will mm. this has become so big and mm. so dominant in our universities and what happens in our campuses will percolate out yeah. and, it, and it, it's such a monoculture in many senses it's like the air you breathe how could we possibly be wrong how could we possibly be different you know how could anybody possibly not want the things that we want right? yeah so, so even to, even to contest that on one, but what I have found is, as a result of various issues, in the last four years, I've kind of on this shield wall, I've kind of reached out and I've felt a hand there, and there's a hand there, and 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 I've found a kind of organic group of people, mm. again, most of whom you've had on this show, mm. who have come together and formed a kind of ecosystem, a kind of organic network, tiny. Yeah. You threw a grenade into a room, you would have one and a half handfuls you'd have wiped out pretty much the resistance if mm -hmm. you want to put it in those terms mm -hmm. and, and then we came together and we met we planned we strategized we kind of did all kinds of interesting things and then and then we worked really strongly on academic freedom legislation so that 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 legislation is uh, as a result of the efforts of that small group yeah uh, basically working with various ministers and spads yes. to really get that on the books yeah, yeah. basically to at least then create a sort of slightly more of a, a, a level playing field mm. where the more illiberal elements that we see on our campuses mm. uh, can be arrested at least or at least create the space for kind of more liberal or plural uh, you know open ideas to basically take place because Universities are fundamentally central to our culture. Oh, yes. what, what's yeah. taught on those campuses will go out and, and become part of our dominant culture a bit further down the conveyor belt. So this is, these are really important struggles. One thing that you go into in the, in the book too, which actually I think we don't, don't hear anything like enough about, is the way in which this decolonization and, and everything that goes with it um, woke thing it's basically used by our geopolitical enemies <coughs> and I think people aren't aware so much of the fact that Russia uses it and China uses it 
this is a minute you point out is a real danger, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So in the book, it's a, it's a broad book. I look at the arguments that are made to sustain the arguments about the need to decolonize. I then push back. I go over the data. And then I look at history mm. as well, because historical narratives are really important. And I end the book with a solid chapter on geopolitics and what these debates and ideas and these cultural trends mean for national identity, sovereignty, and the future of the West ultimately. Uh, in, 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 rela in relation to a kind of increasingly uh, changing world order where we have China's becoming very strong, we've got Russia still fighting a brutal war in Ukraine, we've got various uh, kind of, uh, you know, so essentially in the post-war international system the West really emerged as the dominant American in particular but within the Cold War context and so in, it, we've had kind of in Europe at least a kind of, uh, kind of interdependent, economic interdependence and uh, a broad-based peace and these kind of things. But those things aren't normal in human history. Unfortunately, human history does tend to be characterized by war, international conflict, uh, territorial uh, acquisition, colonialism, etc. So, so where we are now is quite a kind of unique space. Mm. And so in the book, I, kind of, I try and point out the contingency of where we are now, mm. i.e. we didn't just roll out in this, this the freedoms that we enjoy are ultimately contingent, but they have to be defended. Mm. And, though, and the defense of those freedoms, the defense of our values, is related to a broader international dispensation. Mm. Mm. And in the context of a rising China, very, very capable, very technologically very strong, very rich, very powerful, very hardworking, very self-disciplined, uh, and has a plan, and other civilizational states like Russia, etc. But in, in that context, we really have to remain cognizant of what we have and the necessity to defend that too, yes. basically. So um, if I were, you know, so, in, so during the Cold War in, in, in the West, in the East-West contest, right? There was, there, it was about security alliances and, hard, and the application of hard power, international conflict, Vietnam, Korea, etc. But it was also as much, if not more, about a metaphysical struggle between freedom and totalitarianism and also about a belief mm. in oneself, belief in one's civilization, belief, belief in the capacity to exert yourself. If I wish to undermine you as a person that would exert your confidence or your, your, yourself on the world, I try to destroy your confidence. Mm. Mm. Yeah? And one of the ways I can do that is I can belittle you and make you feel very, very guilty. Mm. Very, very guilty, yeah. right? So if you think about it in those terms, a lot of this stuff that we see now pumped out constantly by our, by our, by our, our institutions is almost like a psyops campaign, mm. a psychological operations campaign to undermine our confidence, our moral confidence, mm. essentially. Now, is it directed? Yes, it is in some, in some instances. But it's also, so but in some instances, if you want to put it in very brutal terms, a lot of our cultural institutions are the useful idiots mm. of ultimately oppositional states that want to see us destroy ourselves basically yes want to see us destroy ourselves and if you're playing a long game say say you're a chinese strategist i'm not saying this is the case but say in 2010 you were a chinese strategist and you said look we we operate on a hundred year cycle we're emerging very strong economically and also militarily but we don't want to go to the war with the west it could go badly wrong right so what we can do is, ideally, is we want to hollow them, itself, hollow, the, hollow them out. Right? And so one of the ways we can do that is through the use of various cultural narratives and, and 
identity and cultural narratives because at the end of the day before you have a national interest before you know what you want it has to be emergent from an identity itself interests emerge from identity so I'm, I'm the Chinese strategist and I may say well I'll tell you what one of the ways we can do this is to really amplify the discourses around uh, racial discord for example mm. play races off against each other we can we can despite the data what, and what the data actually shows about uh, racism in the, in, the, in the US, and especially over here, what we can do is we can, put, we, we can sort of amplify this stuff as a sort of racist hellholes, and, and essentially they have to denigrate their institutions, denigrate their history, and, and various key institutions within that society, within that culture, will hollow themselves out. Even the Church of England, mm. in, in a time of crisis, an international crisis, one would think that an institution like the Church of England would at least hold the line. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 so I think, I think, you're, so I think that, that, and so I'm not saying it's all been directed. I'm not saying that at all for a second. But clearly, uh, psychological warfare and influence operations are a big part of the story. A big part of the story. So whether we're useful idiots playing ourselves or whether, but the main point is this: we have to be cognizant that what we have is not natural. Mm. What we have basically rests on a post-war international uh, architecture that is under f fundamental strain and, and change, mm. and we're morphing. Well, look, uh, thank you very much for that, Dan. Um, against decolonization, uh, it's out, isn't it? And yeah. uh, been very 15, well. 15th of September. Right, and it's, it's basically been uh, well reviewed by the critic and the spectator. Uh, I, I think it's excellent and you know thank you for giving us that to around we actually have um, just one question for you for our members exclusive members if you don't no if you don't mind hanging on but uh, thank you very much in the thank meantime you, Peter. Uh, that's it for this for this week and we shall see you next time thank you hello if you're enjoying the new culture forum channel and you believe in our mission may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website newcultureforum.org.uk our work is more important now than ever and we have great plans ahead for the future but we can't do it without your support from as little as three pounds per month you can help ensure that we continue on our mission as a member you'll receive a range of benefits including access to exclusive content invitations to our private events including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you.